Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 110th episode, I'll be talking to Kai McKinney and Megan Bob. One is sociologist, the other the creator of a podcast about Skeletor gardening, but both siblings, about, well, this show. It'll make sense in a minute. Along the way, we discussed how to fake like you know a thing, sports stories told by old people in barbershops, and how to accept a gift. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note, this is really only the first half of the conversation that I had with Kai and Bob. Unfortunately, at the end of what's recorded for this episode, I asked everyone to stop, take a breather, get some water, and then we started up and had another maybe 45 minutes of conversation about amazing things. That then, when we checked the recording, had a technical hiccup in one of the tracks, and so we had to scrap that entire section. I will have Kai and Bob back on for more sibling talk in the future, but for now, enjoy part one. We join this conversation already in progress. say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake. All right. I am Kai McKinney. I am a sociologist completing my master's at a university in the southwestern U.S. My thesis is entitled Imagining Gender Euphoria, and it's about transgender people and how we figure out who we are in the context of our own cultures and how we present our bodies. But uh, I am also the brother of Megan Bob. And we can now give voice to the other face in the room. Hi, Megan Bob. Welcome back. Hi. It's always nice to be here with you. Kai initially came on the show because Megan Bob introduced us and said, this is my brother Kai. Kai would like to speak to you about your show. So, Kai, you've listened to the... Oh, God, I am doing that thing, aren't I? So, you've heard the show. Why don't you tell me what you like about me? <laughs> no, that's the point, though. That's what's happening. Wait, I'll shut up. Kai, you tell, you talk about this. Okay. It's fine that you're doing that, because that's sort of exactly what this is. The first episode I listened to was Megan Bob's first episode. I listened to a couple more, the ones with Claire and Dan and Kit and the other Smash Fiction folks, Miles... And the more I listen to it, the more I realize that what you do, you are really good at. And uh-huh. I'm a research sociologist, and I do qualitative research. My thesis has drawn from interview data. And the thing about interviewing people is it's really, really difficult. It's a craft. And in school, even at the master's level, I was discouraged from doing what is called unstructured interviews, which is what you do, where it's just a conversation that the host or the interviewer just kind of guides a little bit. And what you've done is you've created a fascinating open source data set 
with really rich descriptions. In particular, there's a theorist called Clifford Geertz who came up with something called thick description to criticize. <laughs> yes. I, lo- I love a thick description. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, continue. But the idea was that anthropology at the time was just, it was physical. It was surface level. And he said, no, you have to contextualize everything. You have to make it a story. You have to get more description than just, well, trying to think of an example. Here is a clay tablet. It was kilned in this particular way. It was marked with a pictogram and it was found in this location. Yeah, but context is what was it for? Who made it? Was it, you know, an example of a nice thing or an everyday thing? Was it ceremonial or was it purely utilitarian? That's all context. Is that what you mean? Yes, exactly. Listening to your podcast, I realized you were getting thick description out of everyone I listened to. (laughs) And to get consistent results like that takes such practice or a certain amount of natural talent. (laughs) Actually, it really takes both to be as good as the interviews that I've heard on your podcast. Um, Oh man, I forgot to say what makes me a beautiful and unique snowflake, and I did have a story for that. Oh, go on. Let's hear it. Okay, so when I was 17 and Megan Bob was 19, we were on a trip together, and one morning we were backpacking, and so I had my little blue backpack with a yellow name tag because I was a student at the time. We went down and we had breakfast in the hotel lobby and this guy was walking past on his way out and he grabbed my backpack. And I just reached out and grabbed it and I and I just said, oh, excuse me, I think you grabbed the wrong bag. That's mine. And he was like, no, 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 it's mine. And he was pulling at it. And I was like, no, 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 look, see, it has my name tag. Did you leave yours? And then he ran. <laughs> and the hotel staff were all freaked out. And I just went, what happened? And they said he was trying to steal your bag. And I was like, well, is he okay? (laughs) I I was really worried about this man who had just tried to rob me and his well-being. That encapsulates my my soul. Oh, bless you, you tender child. Oh. See, there have only been two now two robbery stories on this podcast. One was you just now, and the other was Vita Ayala, and they talked about being a teenager and walking through Alphabet City in New York and having someone attempt to hold them up and like knocking the knife out of their hands and picking it up and being like, No, you, you give me your fucking wallet. Huh? And I'm like, How how did you rob your own mugger? And apparently when they got back and told their siblings what had happened, there was a chorus of, you moron, you should have just ran or given them your wallet. (laughs) So I like that any mugging story on this podcast always has a twist ending. (laughs) But I like yours better, Kai, because it did not involve physical harm to another person and in fact worried about the potential emotional harm that stealing your bag may have done to this person. It was a sense of like, well, he probably needed this backpack more than I did. I am that kind of person where I'm like, no, you need my shoes more than I do. In high school, I once gave away the shoes I was wearing. (laughs) That Seinfeld line just popped into my head. It's like, well, what were you going to wear home? Well, I didn't think that far ahead. (laughs) Kind of. As the sibling, I want to say that was definitely a theme growing up. (laughs) Wow. And just to come back for something for a moment, Kai, and it's like, Megan Bob knows this about me, but... I am proud of myself that I did not, in fact, melt into a small puddle 
when you were complimenting me so gently and so beautifully, and I did not attempt to deflect or disagree or any of that stuff. I was very proud of you. Thank you. That's super hard. It very is. It's one of those things where it's like Andy Creighton, former guest of the show, and I have an ongoing DM where she will do something good or have something good happen to her. And I'm like, yeah, it's because you deserve that and you're a good person. And she's like, shut up. No, go away. Just leave it. And I'm like, no, you, you deserve to be happy. And I'm like, this was my friend Ginger as well. If you want to imagine me as a friend, imagine that guy after a Flyers game whipping a white towel around his head as he hangs out of a car as someone drives by being like, this is awesome and you're great and you should be respected for how great you are. As the car is driving by, I am everyone's hype man. What y'all motherfuckers know about my talented friend? (laughs) So yeah. And I think that is one of the things that makes you so good at this you have a human curiosity and investment you have on some level what's called the sociological imagination which is an ability to see people and society as interesting fascinating detailed puzzles i really wanted to know what made you go i want to know what my friend's formative media was like when did you go this is the thing i'm gonna make this is why this subject matters to me initially way back way back in like 2013 or 2014 i was part of a very short-lived maybe 10 or 12 episodes i think it's now lost to the mist of time ginger's taken it offline it was a podcast called the culture squad where we talked about like two linked works and there was four of us in a round table uh what i found is that in doing that it was fun i like doing a podcast with my friends but i also had more of the like I would always get these ideas like on my walk to work and they would be these fizzing bubbling ideas of conversations I wanted to have looking at okay well if you like this thing what other things might you like Max Scoville used to have a show on revision three where he would talk about you know relevant media the equivalent of the extra you know additional reading on your syllabus if you liked Bioshock Infinite and it's weird neo-futurist things here are four books that do this kind of thing and have different takes on them. And I really loved that idea of, as someone who has sampled a lot of media, being that kind of referral engine was my gateway. And what I realized is that it's not just that, it's not just media, it's people themselves are interesting to me. And it's something where, like, I I started with this kind of germ of an idea, where it started off with, like, tell me something good. Give me something that you really enjoy and why you enjoy it you know give me this germ of a thing that makes this special to you something that makes you jump up and down and be like oh my god i cannot wait to talk to you about my vintage video game collection i can't wait to tell you about how ashtangi yoga really changed my life i can't wait to be like look i'm gonna tell you why i look for a cupcake bakery in every city Initially, I did this as like a portrait series. I'm a film photographer as well. And I would do like sit down and just have a talk with people and then take photos afterwards. I think I ended up doing uh, nearly a dozen of those. Like I would just book them out over a weekend and do like three or four in a weekend. And I found it just this really interesting experience. And I've actually made friends through that and have kept in touch with them for years and years. And so there was always something about this where I would just love to hear what someone liked about a thing and even better what someone found special enough that it inspired them in the work that they do so if a recent example um i love transformers more than meets the eye comics they're some of my favorite comics out there in the world written by james roberts and he posted on twitter the other day that when he was a kid he watched the episode of thomas and friends where henry didn't want to go out in the rain and so the fat controller bricked him up uh, in the tunnel 
Oh, God. And how that traumatized him as a child. Yeah. And I, at the time, was watching my two-year-old watch the reimagined version of that for one of the newer Thomas movies, where they had to soften the ending and say, he let me out eventually the next day, but it was pretty scary. Whereas the original one was just, no, maybe he's still there. Oh, God. Hearing that and being like, you are someone who's created some of my favorite story hooks in the entire world, some of my favorite characters. You know, my ships, my Cyclonus and Tailgate ship, a picture of which I can see over there. Yet you had this experience that I never would have said, hey, you know, that Transformers writer, he's a Thomas and Friends kid, I know it. Mm -hmm. But there's some germ of that in there. And I am coming back around to your question, Kai. But what really hooked it for me was... I remember talking to some friends, trying to workshop this idea. Initially, it came, like, some of my early episodes are, like, libraries and book fairs, you know? And, like, talking about the Scholastic Book Fair and having it be this thing that so many of us experienced and had so many complicated emotions around. Uh, you know, like, getting the flyer and taking it home and circling the ones that you wanted and then book fair day came. And you'd be, like, standing by and be like, I have $4, I cannot afford this book. Maybe I can read enough of this book as I'm standing here during book fair time that I can then be like I've read this book and not have to pay for it. Just things like that where I'm like, something kind of connects people and it's those shared experiences. And even if you haven't shared the experience, like uh, Catherine Van Arendonk, who is a friend of mine and a fantastic TV writer, came and told me about how Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman was such an important TV show for her when she was growing up. It was one of the few that her parents said was okay because it was educational. And so <laughs> like getting super deep into it and how, and how important it was. Like I have never watched a full episode of that show in my life. I watched half of an episode in a doctor's waiting room once and it involved like a bare knuckle boxer getting over the hill. And and I was just like, I don't understand what this is. Why is that man wearing buckskins? He is not native. Is this okay? Yeah. Answer was no, it wasn't. But they mostly let that slide. <laughs> so yeah, there's something for someone. And I remember when I was getting started and I was talking to some friends about, I want to do this interview show. And one of the bits of advice I got was an interview show is difficult because it lives and dies by its guests. If you get a dud guest, it can be a dud episode. And I kind of relentlessly rebelled against that. I don't think there is a dud episode. With the exception of, like, maybe, like, literally, it can't continue because someone's not comfortable. Or mm -hmm. that someone, like, doesn't feel good about putting themselves out there. And I think that can be some people. But I don't think that's of any kind of intrinsic flaw or will create a bad episode unless it literally doesn't finish. <laughs> you know, and there are some episodes where I've kind of not loved them at the end. I hang up the phone and I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. I did a lot of talking in that one. I'm not comfortable with that. And in the edit, in the listening back, I've had some people come back and be like, I really love this episode. This had a lot of content I really enjoyed. And so the answer is, I suppose, there's no dud episodes, but also it's not always about what I think, you know? Someone can find something in an episode. It can be five minutes of conversation in an hour, but that spoke to them and that was what they needed to hear in that moment. Do you have any training in like interviewing or research methods at all? Uh, I have a PhD in the School of Hard Knocks and an MD in what some bloke in the pub told me and a BA in getting the shit kicked out of me. No, I do not. I did a little bit of market research in the same way that a lot of people do when they're in, say, first year of university in a degree they're not going to finish or a little bit around a business advanced diploma I did to keep a visa. 
I have some understanding of it. Like some of the stuff you were talking about in qualitative research and stuff, my first thought was, wow, if you're doing this to try and gather any kind of data, that would, I imagine, be extremely difficult because unless you have the same measures to test against, an unstructured interview could go any which way and you end up with a set of variables you can't use. I could see that being a challenge. It would be, depending on what kind of analysis and research you're doing, because Sometimes qualitative research is really structured and you are comparing against previous results. But a lot of times qualitative is used when you're exploring a new concept. Like my thesis explores concepts that have emerged in the literature since I conceived of this project. So yeah, I mean, there's no rule book for that. So any data you get will be useful, I imagine. Yes. And it's sort of similar with your project because really the like a kind of research question that you've answered is... What are the formative experiences for this sample of people? And you can't generalize from it. You can't say, well, this is going to be true for everybody. You have a data set that anybody could take and draw real conclusions from. You do do a really good job of steering and redirecting and also asking follow-up and probing questions, which is where the real magic of interviewing happens. Like you come into it with your map of here's what we're going to talk about. But like you said, it's the little things that just come up that surprise you that make it such a good data set. So can you talk about a few things that came up that really surprised you that you maybe finished the interview and went, wow, that was not what I expected, but it was good. Oh, absolutely. So I was talking to Emily Fear. And ostensibly, we were going to be talking about, like, after-school dramas. Like, drugs are bad, don't fall in with the wrong crowd. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, this is an evil mental asylum that's going to be abusing its patients, that kind of stuff. The kind of stuff that was on TV in the late 90s and early 2000s. And inexplicably, we were just talking about, like, she mentioned that she was in a band. And so I went and listened to a bunch of music of her band. And I had a bunch of questions because it was really interesting. It was like, this is really cool how you've done this. Let's talk about that. And we talked about music for like 15 minutes. And she mentioned how her mother used to bring her instruments. And then out of nowhere, I forget how we got there. She mentioned that she had this really cool jar of buttons that was her favorite thing growing up. And how she would try and explain that to people who came over and they just didn't quite get it because it wasn't their buttons. But she's like, and then we we honestly talked for 20 minutes about a jar of buttons. And if you had ever asked me, hey, are you going to do 20 minutes of a one hour podcast episode about this really sick jar of buttons that this little girl had? Would that be one, compelling listening, and two, anything that you could have predicted? And the answer is no, probably on both counts, but I would have been wrong on both counts because I absolutely loved it. And it was a complete surprise. But actually coming back to one of your earlier questions, when you're talking about training, I realized something when I was talking to Margaret H. Willison on my very first Hey, Have Someone Interview Me episode. And then it kind of was cemented when I talked to Bob, when Bob interviewed me. It was something that kind of came to me as, why do I do this? Where does this come from? And the answer was, I moved more than once a year for almost my entire life until I was 20. We would move schools, we would move houses, we would move, you know, entire provinces in Canada. You know, we would pack everything into a car and drive from Vancouver to Gatineau, which is a suburb on the French side of Ottawa, and then a year later drive from there to New Brunswick and set up there again. And it's something that was so a part of my life. At one point, 
midway through grade six, I moved away to another school, started grade seven there, and moved back to the catchment area of the previous school. So I was seeing teachers again I had seen at the beginning of the previous year and had a whole new experience in between then. So what I found very quickly is how to, if not make friends with people, at least find commonality with people. Mm-hmm. You know, navigate to drama kids. Have you watched The Princess Bride? Do you remember it? I sure do. My mom got it from the library when I was 10, and I watched it once, and so much of that movie burned into my brain about how cool it was. And I had not thought about it until grade 8, when I was, you know, hanging out with a bunch of kids sitting at the top of the stairs on the one landing, which is where the kids sat that was near the vending machine. We started talking about The Princess Bride, and I was like, oh, I remember that movie. And there was that really cool sword fight, and he was, you killed my father, prepare to die. And it was this instant commonality with these people that I didn't have before. And I wasn't the new kid. I was, oh, right, yeah, I know that new kid. Yeah, he knows a lot about movies. Or, yeah, we bonded over The Princess Bride. At no point previously did I think, I must commit this to memory in order to make friends with these people. But it's such an easy touchstone, especially in what would have been at the time, the mid-90s, which was still kind of the last bastion of media scarcity, which is where you'd have a lot of people who hadn't seen something and a small few who had. And if you were one of those few, boom, well, this was your friend. Because that person knew the thing that you did, you know? Yeah. That person also read the what if issue where what if Conan and Wolverine switched places Mm -hmm. and Wolverine went back and married Red Sonia. My friend John at the bus stop who loaned me that comic told me that this was a continuing series and they got married and she got claws too, which was not true. Yeah. But I believed it was true for a long time. So it was one of those things where I could, if I had that knowledge, and I had lots of knowledge because I kind of consumed indiscriminately like I think I told someone once I didn't know what a bad movie was until I was in grade seven up until that point all movies had a relative goodness because they were in fact movies and things happened in those movies and if you had that movie on VHS you watched that movie over and over again because it was a movie if you had a book you read that book over and over again because it was a book and so the idea of relative quality, like, sure, there's some stuff I like in this book and more stuff that I like in this other book, but the idea that's, that a work could be bad did not occur to me until I watched a terrible straight-to-DVD or straight-to-VHS at the time, a movie called Soldier X, which is at the point where he was being tracked by uh, nanites in his blood, so he put a tube of his blood on a collar and put it on a rat and sent that rat into the sewer, and he's like, this will stop them from tracking me, and I went, hang on, no. <laughs> And I turned the movie off. I was so mad. And it was the first time that I realized, wait, I don't have to like this movie. This movie sucked. (laughs) So I suppose having that kind of indiscriminate collecting of information meant I had lots of cards in my deck that I could be like, oh, if I need to follow suit on this, like you were saying, you know, I know enough about this thing that I can talk. And the person thinks I know what I'm talking about, even if all I know is that thing. It's the joke from the IT crowd about, uh, did you see that ludicrous display last night? And how you can bond with your sports friends. Mm. Yes. As opposed to the rather narrow view that is. This is just like, oh no, I know enough about, I saw half of a rugby game while I was on holiday. And I was able to say, you know, I don't really know anything about Tri-Nations rugby, but, you know... That game seemed pretty one-sided. Oh, yes, it's always like that with New Zealand. Oh, they're really good, are they? Yes, they always destroy us, except for that one year. Really, tell me about that one year, because I don't know about that one year. They go, oh, yeah, it was an absolute blowout, and everyone was surprised, especially the people who won. They did not expect that to happen. Cool. And in my head, I'm like, the next time someone mentions the Bledisloe Cup, I can talk about the one time that Australia won in 48 years. Oh, wow. That's cool. 
Like I love stories, like if I'm waiting to get my hair cut at the barbershop and someone is talking about a soccer coach who in 1975 ruined the honor of a team by taking a bribe. And I'm like, yeah, I want to hear about that. Tell me about that. Have you always been invested in story? Absolutely. Yeah, it was something where I was the kid, and, and it's such a cliche now, but I was the kid who read the encyclopedia. I had the Funk and Wagnalls and Encyclopedia Britannica, both the adult and the children's version. And the children's version was better because it had pictures. And because the entries were shorter, I could get through more of them. And if I had nothing else to read, I would grab one off there and just like flip till I found a picture and read about it, especially when it came to like nature and animals and bugs and space and things like, give me all of that. You know, I was the kid who had a dried seahorse and a bird's nest that I had found that had broken eggs in it. And I put it up on a shelf and I would show those to people who came to my room. So... Yeah, I was always like, I was always looking for more information, which is why the internet is now a dangerous thing, because I will now have 35 tabs open, half of them TV tropes, half of them Wikipedia. (laughs) Every once in a while, Chrome will dump all your tabs on iOS. And every time it is like a knife to my heart. So I'm like, there's no way I'm going to follow that rabbit hole thread back to this weird Mark Daskaskos adaptation of Crying Freeman, an anime about a modern ronin. And I love Mark Descascos because I saw him in a movie called Only the Strong about capoeira. And it was great. And Mark Descascos is also a beautiful man. Still, he was in that third John Wick movie. Oh, what? As the John Wick fanboy who, like, wanted to sit next to him and be like, I know all about your work, man. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> the bald dude who's the leader of the ninjas. That's Mark Descascos. He also starred in the Crow adaptation, The Crow Stairway to Heaven. Oh, my God. Which was very short-lived. Oh my god. Which was like Highlander the series, if it was The Crow. I remember I tried to read a novel version of The Crow, but I was like a child at the time. I was like maybe an adolescent. (laughs) I liked the image on the cover, and then I read like the first five pages, and I went, I don't think I should be reading this at 13. Oh, there's a lot of heroin in this book. (laughs) He's sad, and does heroin, and plays guitar, and kills some dudes, and is sad some more. Oh yeah. The Crow original content is pretty extreme. Yeah. I've told this story on the show before, but, you know, talking about media that you saw before you were supposed to, I did read a book called The Predators, which I got from a library book sale for, like, a dollar. It enticed me because it had, like, a shark jaw on the front, and it said, bear versus shark, who will win? (gasps) And it was, like, a Kodiak grizzly bear versus a great white shark. Oh, God. A shallow pool where the shark could move around, but the bear could still find footing. And I was like... F, yes, I am all over this. I want to know how this happens. And the first half of the book is like, how do they catch the shark? And a bunch of people die as they try to catch the shark. And then, like, they how to find the bear. And, like, the bear is, like, this titan of the wilderness. But then it becomes about a communist coup in this, like, Banana Republic country where they're having this fight. It also had incredibly graphic sex scenes mm. doing stuff that I know as a 38-year-old grown-ass adult you should not do. Like, covering a penis in cocaine. <laughs> Like a dipped cone. Oh, God. And then having sex with it. <gasps> having all signs of visible pleasure. And I'm reading this going, no. No, sir. That is a waste of both drugs and sex. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, my, I'm sorry. I'm just horrified. <laughs> I'm like, why would you introduce powder to that process? Right? Anyone who's been to the beach and has then tried to eat, like, I don't know, some watermelon that you brought along in a Tupperware knows that is a losing proposition. But also, 
Yeah, so that book was something I should not have read. Ditto Jackie Collins' Hollywood Kids, which I read when I was 13. Should not have done that. So yeah, like you were saying about the Crow stuff, it was like, yeah, there are some things that you are not ready for. And especially those Crow novels. Actually, the author's now known as Billy Martin, but was known then as Poppy Z. Bright. Oh. Okay. Wrote a Crow tie-in novel that was not based on the comics, was not based on anything. And actually was this really interesting story about a pair of trans twins, like trying to set up a safe place for themselves. And the protagonist kind of stumbles into this. At the time, again, I had not read a ton of literature that like centered the trans experience. And I remember just thinking like, wait, I thought this was a crow book, but this is all really interesting and I want to read more about this. So your tie-in novels can actually be this like fun little gateway into a, you know, a different author and a different scene that you were not really exposed to at the time. Like Megan Bob and I were talking about Tu Wong Fu Mm. and comparing it to, comparing Tu Wong Fu to the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Yes. Right? Tu Wong Fu has a couple of scenes that will kind of clue you in if you're, you know, again, a 15-year-old cis kid who just walked into the cheap movie theater to see that movie with Leslie Snipes and Patrick Swayze in it and got a hell of a, wow, okay, this was not what I was expecting. I like it, though. Whereas Priscilla is so centered in the drag scene and the gay scene in Sydney, specifically in Oxford Street and King's Cross and Erskineville, where the Imperial Hotel is, which is where they drive off from, and has no time to explain any of it to your dumbass. <laughs> it is setting itself specifically within this scene and making this scene so central to it that when it goes out into the desert to these small towns in the middle of nowhere, it brings the scene with it and it is those towns that cannot deal with it and that is their fault, not the scene's fault. It's a very different viewpoint. We have come so I, far afield, Kai, from your original question. I don't even remember what my original question was at this point. Gosh, I think it was it was like surprising situations that we found and then we took attention from there. Also, I gotta say, I mean, we are in like, what, month eight? of social isolation. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. I think we are all at a point where it's just like, wow, talking to people again. Isn't that great? Novel. <laughs> yeah. I have work meetings that are meant to be 25 minutes, half an hour if they're long. And they have gone an hour and 15 because someone's just like, oh, I was talking to my mom the other day and we were talking about this thing and blah, blah, blah. And it's great if you're on the late shift because that takes up a good chunk of your day. If you're on the early, you're like, I just want to go home. Please stop telling me about the person you saw at the grocery store. Do you want more people to use your podcast as a data set? Like, is that something that interests you? is like seeing what people would do with it in research. Well, absolutely. I mean, at no point do I think I ever want to structure it in that way. But Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where if as a happy byproduct of these conversations I get to have with people who tend to become my friends afterwards, if there is something that can be learned from that, then absolutely, yeah, I think that would be great. I could also see, like like you were saying, it reminded me there's a magician named Brian Brushwood who I've been following for a long time. He does like a couple of podcasts and stage magic and things. And he built something as a prank, like sort of as a bar trick you could pull on someone to be like, oh, you pick any of these cards. And, oh, really, did you pick that? Because I found that, like I found this video where it says, like I asked you a couple of questions and you came up with this card. Here, I'll find this YouTube video. This is the man talking about that in this scenario, everyone picks that card. But here's the thing, no one picks the same card ever. So what he had done is that based on a series of cues, you could look up the video that matched to the card the person had chosen. Like it was this kind of 
triple nested, more complicated than it should be way of just like blowing a friend's mind for five minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, and fooling them. But what he found as a side effect to this is that he had all these links and he had made all these links through like Bitly and through these other things. And so he had analytics on these links. And because it was a podcast on Revision 3 and on YouTube and stuff, millions of people used these links. And so what he ended up with at the end of it was a massive data set of the most commonly chosen cards. He then, because he is a magician and an ingenieur and stuff, was able to build several tricks around, well, I know that in this scenario, among these five, 87% of people will pick this card among this list. So he was able to, based on probability, and, you know, this massive, enormous, randomly generated data set, be able to say, all right, I can give you five cards and I can tell you which one you will pick and be right most of the time. Again, it's like it's something that he kind of, as he put it, stumbled ass backwards into. But once you've got it and you've got that kind of mind to like look at it from that one slant angle and be like, oh, yeah, I can do that. If something like that comes of this, then yeah, that's awesome. But I mean, like my viewpoint on the show and what it's meant to accomplish is it's meant to replicate. Everyone's had that thing at a party or at a bar or something like where you don't know everybody, but you know some people and you're having a conversation or you hear a conversation and someone says something and you like wheel over from across the room and you're like, oh my God, are you talking about this thing? Yes. Oh my God, how good is that thing, right? Or the example I always gave is I was reading The Wheel of Time in high school because I was a person of a certain age at a certain time who liked a certain kind of book. And so I would devour these massive doorstopper books, but I never talked about it with anyone because I didn't know anybody else who was reading them apart from the aunt who had given me the first four who got it because it was similar to the kind of things that I liked. Someone mentioned it. Oh yeah, it's this book, right? And there's this one character. And I went, (gasps) I know exactly. And we had this frenzied conversation. Oh my God. And could you believe when this, what's your theory on this? Oh my God. Yeah, it's like this. And you realize they pronounce half the names differently than you do. Mm -hmm. And you realize that what you had taken as obvious, they were like, oh no, that was a mystery. And you're like, oh, but if you look back and look at X, Y, Z, can you believe that? So yeah, that's that feeling I want to replicate Mm -hmm. is that surge of interest and that shared kind of nostalgia is now kind of a poison chalice to talk about, Mm -hmm. but it's that shared experience. But the other thing I wanted to replicate, and this is something that I have been accused of doing in person at parties when cocktails are flowing, and when I had an Apple TV, and before they dummied out the fact that you could switch between phones of who was controlling the TV. But that thing of, oh, you haven't heard of this thing? And then having that not be, oh, no, you don't know that. You're clearly not cool, and we should ostracize you. But it becomes, oh, my God, I get to share this with you and watch your first-time reactions to this baffling thing that I am aware of and now I get to share that with you like my friend Annie showing me Midori Days which is an anime about a school bully hard man who there's a girl who has a crush on him and due to some kind of magical spell she becomes his right hand she becomes a little like puppet sized person on his right hand and they do not shy away from any of the terrifying implications Ah! of this incredibly weird thing that has happened him trying to uphold his status as a bully and a tough guy, but he can't fight because he has a person on the end of his arm. (laughs) And so she has to live in his pocket. But also, this is a tiny teenage girl with teenage girl urges and teenage girl thoughts who also has now had her entire life shanghaied to be this man's hand. 
It's baffling, and there is a subculture of doll otakus who talk about women in incredibly creepy ways. About it, wouldn't it be great if a girl was like a tiny perfect doll ah. who didn't say anything and was just pretty? And everyone like recoils from the screen as he says it because, oh my god, what is wrong with you? And yeah, and yeah, my friend Annie introduced this to me like on a Sunday afternoon when we were like we had already gone to the liquor store to buy more booze because we ran out of what we had bought for, mm-hmm. that we thought would last us all day. <laughs> And then hearing on a podcast, Joe Graham of How To Wrestling, talk about this but not know the name of it, but having seen it at a party, and I was able to message her and be like, I'm sure I'm the 50th person who has said this, but that was Midori Days, wasn't it? And her going, no, no one else knew what it was, but you knew, oh my God, how weird was that? (laughs) Oh, that's magical. So yes, all of that kind of smushed into this thing. That's my view for the show and how it should be. Awesome. See, the irony of me interviewing you is that you are a much better interviewer than I am. And I, I say that <laughs> having done interviews as my thesis. Oh, buddy. Yeah, I'm okay at it, but it's just, it's a thought process for me. It doesn't flow yet. And to me, achieving the flow of a conversation in an interview is, like, how long did it take for you to feel like you could have these as conversations? I kind of approached it like that from the start. Mm-hmm. And my partner and the mother of my child, who I feel weird calling my girlfriend, but also Kimiko told me about this. And then she's like, because we met on Tinder of all places <laughs> in like 2013 when Tinder was nice still and not the horrifying hellscape that it is now. And the way I approached that is the way I approached any social media. Let's talk about stuff, you know? And we talked for like a week before we met up. And it was just, hey, so what's going on for you today? And if we had nothing else to talk about, I would, you know, just talk. I hate Tuesdays. Well, why? Well, Mondays have a weird nervous energy to them. And, you know, Wednesdays, you're the middle of the week. It's hump day. You're on the way down. And Thursdays, you're almost there. And also, usually, that's every second Thursday is a payday. So, that like, the, you know, sometimes people go out after work. And then Friday's great because it's the beginning of the weekend. And Saturday is, like, oh, the whole weekend's ahead of you. And Sunday has this chill beer garden kind of vibe to it. And you're back to Monday. But Tuesday, what the fuck is Tuesday, man? <laughs> Tuesday is some bullshit. It is a nothing day, and we should abolish it. Mm-hmm. So, like, that is just me talking. Like, that got us talking. And so that was how I always approach any conversation. What are we talking about? Nothing? Great. I will find a thing to talk about. And even if that person goes, wow, that was a weird thing to talk about. Yeah, I get kind of chatty, but I don't really know my my footing with someone. What do you want to talk about? (laughs) But when it comes to these conversations, right? Mm -hmm. And it's weird because as someone who does an interview show, like there are some interviewers I love. Like there's an Australian interviewer named Andrew Denton who had a long-running chat show called Enough Rope with Andrew Denton. Mm -hmm. That was his style, is that I will give you space to talk about whatever you want, and I will play out that rope, and sometimes that rope will hang you, and sometimes that rope, you'll do a trick. Mm -hmm. Like, that was his thing. If I give someone enough rope, they'll do a trick. Yeah. And his interviewing method, he's an incredibly quiet and still little man, and he would just listen, and he would go, so what do you think about that? Or, you mentioned this, what about that? Why don't we talk about that? He had Steve Irwin on that show. Steve Irwin, bombastic, bodacious, high-energy Steve Irwin. And he got Steve Irwin talking about his mother and father trying to run a struggling wildlife preserve and park in the 70s and how low things got for that family. Oh, wow. And he would come home and find his mother crying for no reason. But then they would have, like, baby kangaroos that they had found by the road that they were raising and that he had this massive property that he would go and get himself lost in and about how 
his public persona is great and it is really him but also he gets really down and has trouble focusing sometimes and i'm listening to this going this is not what i expected of a steve Irwin interview yeah i expected him to wrestle an inflatable crocodile like he did on the morning show you know and like to hear this being pulled out of him mm-hmm. and it wasn't painful it wasn't like hey i'm gonna barbara walters you and ask you the question that's gonna rock you to your soul mm-hmm. No, I'm going to talk to you, and you're going to find yourself telling me stuff. And what I loved about that style is that while Andrew would sometimes do a lot of the talking, Mm -hmm. he was never the focus of the interview, Mm -hmm. nor should he be. And like the phrase I always use is, I am the frame, Mm -hmm. the guest is the picture. My job is to make myself fit that picture so well that it makes them look fantastic. You know, if you have a tiny piece this big mm-hmm. and the frame is five inches wide and ornate and has little angels that, you know, stealing things from dogs and running away, you're not <laughs> focusing on that picture, man. You know, yeah. that's not what that is for. But then again, sometimes having an incredibly spare black frame on a certain picture, it's taking away from that picture because it's not how it's meant to be shown. And I've said this to people before and like, I do my own editing and I edit in a way that I'm pretty sure nobody else edits but I don't care because it is how I edit and it's how I want to present my show Mm -hmm. and I now do producing for other podcasts and I approach those podcasts the same way I want everyone involved to sound like they are the smartest, coolest, best most comfortable version of themselves and if that means removing every um that takes me hours if that means removing where they kind of repeated themselves or said the wrong word or Frankensteining a sentence out of four broken sentences because a person couldn't quite get the idea of what they were kind of, oh, you mean, uh, trying to kind of say, I will compress that into a thought because I want them to be understood. They are there to be heard and understood by the audience, and I desperately want that for them. But what drives me nuts sometimes about interviewers is that sometimes an interviewer gets so excited about their subject mm-hmm. They run over that subject like a mech truck. Like, for example, I really like Jesse Thorne. Jesse Thorne is a good interviewer on Bullseye. Occasionally, he gets so excited about the person he's talking to and having something in common that that person will get three words into a sentence. He'll go, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about this. Because I think this about that. It makes me chew on my knuckles on the bus listening to that because I'm just like, no, no. No, this person was on the verge of saying something really insightful about how they viewed Chance the Rapper as a very positive example to a nihilistic worldview of a lot of rap. And you just drove over and say, ah, but don't a lot of people find him that way? And don't you think that pigeonholes him a bit? And I'm just like, Jesse, I love you, man. Shut up. Shut up. Please, please shut up. Your view on this is great. It is not why this person is here. This person is here to tell their view on this thing. Because I can hear your view another week when someone else is not talking about this thing. I want to hear what David Diggs has to say about Chance the Rapper. I love you, Jesse Thorne, but I prefer David Diggs' view on Chance the Rapper to yours. Mm. You know? Yeah. Like, that's what drives me up the wall with some interviewers. Mm Mm-hmm. There's that new David Letterman show, and David Letterman is a legend, and David Letterman has been doing this for a long time. Kibiko put on his interview with Kim Kardashian, and he kept going back to the well of, I'm old and I don't know how my phone works, and I wanted to stab the screen. My God, you have a person in front of you who probably has a lot to say and is kind of interesting and also a little bit controversial for good reason. And all you want to do is say you don't know how to take a selfie on your phone and have her show you how to take a selfie. Is this the best use of this interview time? Mm. Really? Is this doing anything but getting a cheap laugh? 
again, I feel like I've gone down the negative rabbit hole, so I will swing it back around to some positive stuff. But I really love an interviewer who will grab onto something. Mm-hmm. I think I've talked in previous episodes. I did a lot of improv. Like, I did some very short kind of theater sports, funny, whose lines it anyway kind of improv, mm-hmm. and then kind of dropped off from it because it's kind of a shallow well sometimes, especially in a city like Sydney that doesn't have a big scene. And then I was invited by a friend, Linda Calgaro. She said, well, my friend Jonathan is doing this workshop series where we're going to do long form in the style of a guy like Dave Rosaski. And it's going to be challenging, and you're going to feel uncomfortable, and you might hate it after the first one and not want to come back, but I think you should come. And there were about 15 of us, and there was maybe five who rotated around and a couple who would just drop in. But we did, like, long form workshops once a week for six months with this core group of 10 people. And then we started doing shows where it was some TJ and Dave type stuff where you would step onto the screen, you would assume a pose, you'd turn and look at the other person, you'd have 30 seconds to look at them, and then you would start a scene. And you were to carry that scene as long as it could go. And it wasn't always funny, and it wasn't always as successful, because again, it's improv, but when I look at an interview, and someone will mention something and keep going, I will think of it like, you have just given me this gift. Mm -hmm. Why on earth would I walk past that gift and go on to the easy conversation so we can start talking about point-and-click adventure games or something. You have just dropped me that amazing gift. I will occasionally, you see I have a notepad here in front of me because we were on video. Mm -hmm. I will write that down and I will stop and I'm going to say, look, that's great. I am going to stop you there because you said this and there is no way I am letting you go past that without explaining to me what the hell that means or what your feelings on that were because I feel like there's more there. And I think being able to openly say that not to have it be a trick I'm playing on someone. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to hold that in reserve and then surprise them. Yeah. Like that's, that's predatory, and I don't like it. I am not looking to put someone on the back foot so they reveal something. Mm-hmm. I, no, I will say, hey, you said this cool thing. Tell me more about that thing. Like, you talk about structure to an interview. Mm-hmm. Like, that could be derailing. You know, we could be here to talk about a topic. I don't care. Tell me about that cool thing you just said. And it could be nothing. And it could be five seconds of, oh, okay, well, that's not really something. Anyway, or even just like being able to stop and say, hey, okay, we kind of went down a rabbit hole there. We were talking about this other thing. I know you wanted to talk about this topic. Let's talk about this topic. Yeah. What do you think? That's a collaborative way of doing things as opposed Mm -hmm. to either slavishly sticking to the format, which is we're only going to be here to talk about LucasArts point and click adventure games from the mid 1990s. Anything that's not that should be snipped out because we don't care about it bullshit you know (laughs) yeah we can talk about that for 20 minutes but you can also tell me about something else entirely you know it's it's whatever is going to be the best show and i think that's my roundabout way of saying that i want to be in service to this person who is my guest and to our audience and make teamwork you know we have to like (laughs) who was it oh god i'm trying to think now oh it was jeff stormer i think we were talking about the muppets and how any content creator is in awe of kermit the frog Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because Kermit the Frog put on a show every single week. He pushed that smoking, flaming wreck of a car across the finish line, even though some people were talking about how they didn't like the color of the hubcaps. Or, hey, I want to do this thing where I draw on the windshield and nobody can see where we're going. Yeah, cool. I don't care. Look, we're going to do this, and it only ever just happens, you know? (laughs) But Kermit keeps all that together. The stage manager of our dreams, you know? Liz Lemon without the uh, Tina Fey baggage. Mm. 
that's my view on this. I want to get my guests together and have the absolute best goddamn show that we can have. That's really cool. Sorry about that, folks. It did end really abruptly. But thank you to Kai and Megabob for their time. For Kai's signature cocktail, a Ward 8 was mentioned. Now, if you don't know, a Ward 8 is basically a rye whiskey sour with lemon juice and orange juice. I wanted to take that and give it a little bit more of a flourish. So I present the Ward 9. In an empty shaker, combine 2 ounces of Irish whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of orange juice, three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice, a quarter ounce of simple syrup, a sixth of an ounce of grenadine, and one egg white. Shake vigorously without ice, then add ice and shake again until combined and the outside of the shaker frosts over. Strain into a chilled cocktail glass and garnish with lemon wheel. The other eight wards were too secret to be released. Enjoy. Matthew is recorded in Ride, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokivide and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge as much as you want, but honestly, there's probably better ways to spend your money. If you did want to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcasting service and leave a five-star rating. It helps our metrics and helps people find the show. Or you can write a review, and I'll read it out. Wouldn't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever played, going all the way back to episode one, including this one. It's I'm Your Man by Lucas Silveria. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get the new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Seb Deacon about the music of Mega Man 2 and opera. It makes more sense than it sounds. Join me, won't you? Back and I'm begging on
his knees Or I'd crawl to you, baby And fall at your feet I'd howl at the Kai has some really cool shit I have nothing to add to it So I don't want to be like hold Hey, on, I hold also on. read a book once Megan, Evelyn, Bob Did you just pull up a mason jar With a green straw in it? It's the only thing that's <laughs> giant enough to hold my beverage. Oh my god. Just a casual. Cheers. Oh, there you go. There you go. If they made something gianter that was dishwasher safe, I would use that. Mm-hmm. But Tiki mugs are your friend there. There you go. See? that's This is my problem. It was this weird juxtaposition that I had this morning and I had to share it with you guys. So, because we just came back from a week away. We went up, up the north coast of New South Wales because we are okay to travel within the state. And so we went to a, it's sort of a hotel slash resort, but basically it's like a service apartment. Mm. So Hiro, Kimiko, and I drove up. It was about two hours in the car. So it feels like you're actually like going somewhere else. So it was this hotel and it had like a circular pool in the middle. It was the biggest pool in the continent where you just start swimming and you'll eventually just come back around to your house. Whoa. It's very good. And then you could just drive up the road and there's like dog beaches and stuff. And so here I got to swim in the ocean. And yeah, it was very good. And we were there a week, which is enough time to like decompress and like have some days where you do stuff. Like we went to a wildlife park and Hero fed baby goats with a bottle and like lost his mind. Also, all wildlife parks should have a water park at the end. Yeah. Because all the kids who have been walking around in the sun can then just be like, all right, I'm going to go run through this giant sprinkler and like this massive bucket that like dumps on you and stuff. So yeah, that was great. Yeah. So I came back and Kimiko's mom and dad had been stopping by to feed the cats and water the garden, except her dad forgot to water the garden. And also there were like four 39 degree days here, which mm. hang on, I will do the math on what that is for you guys. It's No, hot. I kind of know what it is. It's close to a hundred. There you go. It's hot as balls. I had a bunch of seedlings that Hiro and I were growing and they got torched real bad, but like Ooh. withered and died like a flamethrower had been put to them. And Kimiko's mom's a fantastic gardener, but she got there too late. And she's like, yeah, it was a 39 degree day. There's nothing I could have done. But what's also funny is that this last week, like in preparation for the trip, Kimiko doesn't get much time to play the Switch as much as she used to with Hero being home. And so I thought, you know what would be a great game for her who loves like Zelda and grinding and stuff? I'm going to get her hooked on Stardew Valley, which, oh my God, we have both taken to with like a fever. Like, I think I put 13 hours into that thing in the first four days. Oh, damn. While being a parent on vacation. So it was intense. And I realized that I had essentially with my own garden, a Stardew Valley situation where I went away and came back and a season had changed and all my shit died. Oh, I hate when that happens. Oh, the first time it happened, I had entire fields set up. And then it's like day one of summer. It's like, boom. (gasps) (laughs) It was like that scene in, in Terminator 2 where she's at the playground. No! And then, because I had today off, and I knew I had this at 11. But I'm like, oh, you know, I'll kind of put around the house a bit. I'll, I'll vacuum. I'll put some stuff away. And then I sat down and played like an hour and a half of Stardew Valley, like on the mm. big TV compared to just the little <gasps> screen. And so I was like, everything seems so big. I can see the pixels. This is great. <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe I should go and tent my actual garden as opposed to my mm. <laughs> fictional garden. But now we're like, Kimiko and I will be like, we're far enough into the game where we've taken different paths. And so we'll be like, oh, did you find the dwarf in the mines? And I'm like, what dwarf in the mines? She's like, oh, shit, you got to use a cherry bomb to blow up a wall. And then you'll find a dwarf. And he has you do missions for him. And he, like, gives you bonuses. And I'm like, oh, well, have you made friends with everybody yet? 
What do you mean make friends? Oh, you got to give them gifts and you got to make sure it's the shit they like. Because if they don't like it, your friendship rating goes down. And then you'll occasionally get missions where you have to like do the right thing and they get closer to you. And they're starting to get a little flirty with me. And I'm just saying, you know, I got like a few spouses on offer at the moment. It's going very well. She's like, I hate everybody. I give them stuff and they just tell me how much they hate it. Like, you have to listen to them. You have to ask them what they like. She's like, I don't give a shit what they like. I'm giving them what I don't want. And I'm like, you're a mercenary. What's wrong with you? It's about connection. <laughs> Hearts and minds. And we're standing there in the kitchen. I look at her. I'm like, are we talking about our virtual farm experience? She's like, we're such fucking nerds. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I know. She's like, I want, I want to push you into a locker right now. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Bob, I think I'll take this opportunity to be like, check out all your postcards Aww. that you've sent me. Yay! Up along with my Robbie Eagle Scott Pilgrim stuff and my various other weird posters, including Bucky Barnes as a Beastie Boy. That JoJo Seems drew for me because she drew a bunch of Bucky Barnes studies, and I was like, is he holding a boombox? And she's like, no, it's a futuristic rocket launcher, but now I want to draw him with a boombox. That's amazing. And around the outside, she's like, yo, my name's Bucky Barnes, and I'm here to say I'm a defrosted, nonagenarian, amnesiac, Nazi brainwashed, experimental, Soviet, cybernetic, super soldier, assassin, World War II POW on the lam, and I'm not okay. <sighs> Bless Judge Seems. She great. That's glorious. All right, so I have been talking a lot. What's you guys' vibe? Oh, man. Kai, do you want to feel that? I'm nervous. I'm excited. I went into social science for a reason which is I love people, but I don't know how to interact with them. I just know how to study them. <laughs> well, if I remember correctly, is you pick up a jar of mayonnaise and then you hit X to interact and that like gives it to them, but you can't give them more than two jars of mayonnaise in a week. <laughs> That's the Man, secret. is that the secret? I've been doing it so wrong. <laughs> and then occasionally someone will be like, ugh, why would you give me this? And I'm like, it's mayonnaise. Everybody likes mayonnaise. I checked the wiki. It's a universal like. And then there's a footnote that says, Ah, oh, not this person. They hate mayo. And it's like, <sighs> how do they exist in the world? I love mayonnaise. Me too. You do. You do. You used to eat mayonnaise sandwiches. No regrets. Would do it again. <laughs> I was a late convert to mayo. It took like QP mayo living in our fridge like indefinitely for me to be like, yeah, I love it. Or actually, aioli was the stepping stone because aioli is like, like mayo if it was good. Yes. And, and like when you first get it, you're like, is this what I've been missing in my life? Mm-hmm. Aioli's amazing. Yeah, that's true. It's like when you first drink Tony Port or some, like, fortified sweet wine. My first thought when I tried one, was like, this is what I thought wine tasted like when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, you look at it, and it's, like, you know, golden and occasionally sparkling or bubbly, and you expect to sip it and get this beautiful, like, you know, sweet thing. And Because you're a kid, and everything should be sweet. And instead, it's, you know, wine. And you would say, you're like, oh, what is wrong with everyone? Mm. so true a friend of mine put up a thing about you know when you're smelling a tea and it's like oh it smells like i'm running through a summer meadow and there's a bit of like like autumn leaves still on the ground even though that doesn't make any sense but it's also the flowers that my teacher had outside her window and then you take a sip and it's like this is water yep yep (laughs) i am very specific about the teas that i drink because i need teas that taste like a lot punch yeah and a lot of, yeah, a lot of teas don't taste like much. And so, but I also hate teas that taste fakey. And a lot of the teas that have strong flavors taste fakey. So I pretty much only order from August LA 
And let me tell you, Lucas, if you thought I was a hipster for having a mason jar, <laughs> Lucas Brown, the teas have a description with them that tells you what they taste like, but not in terms of taste. I have a tea that I drink called Golden Arrow, and it tastes like, quote unquote, the Vienna Secession, the art movement. I'm slow clapping for this this beautiful description. Perfect, I love it. I've been drinking this tea for months and I had no idea those descriptions were there. Oh, aren't they amazing? I love them. Oh God, I've been missing out. Thing is, I love the over the top description on something. I also <laughs> love the incredibly minimalist description on some things. Like there's a gelato place here called Gelato Messina and they've recently like franchised out and they're now all over the city. Uh, but if you go to their website and the about us section, it is two lines. We make gelato. We're pretty good at it. Nice. And I'm like, that is a flex that I respect. That's that's some pro wrestler energy. None of this. A man had a dream. When he first tasted gelato, he knew what he wanted to do with his life. And he scraped together rocks in order to form his first, his first <laughs> ice cream machine. Like, no, man. We make this thing and it fucking rules. Deal with it. Get on my level. Those are people who have nothing to prove. Yeah, man. Speaking of wrestling, Bob, you will never meet this wrestler along NXT, but there was a wrestler who used to be a UFC fighter named Dan Severn, right? Mm-hmm. Can you do me a favor and just Google Dan Severn and just look at a picture of him and tell me I he can. doesn't look like a like a peewee soccer coach, like when you see him. And he used to do MMA, you said, right? He used to do MMA, and then he did pro wrestling for a while. Okay. And spelled Dan, S-E-V-E-R-N. Oh, boy. I... This man was the father of one of my friends, I swear to God. Like, he looks like it. Like, like he would be like, hey, you kids don't, don't roughhouse in here. Yeah, exactly. He had strong opinions about what time we should go to bed at the sleepover. Yeah, and what's funny is he is an MMA fighter. He is trained in Greco-Roman wrestling, jiu-jitsu, all these things. And he, this man could physically kill you with his pinky. Like, he is an incredibly dangerous person. But in the way of a lot of incredibly dangerous people, he's incredibly soft-spoken. You know, he kind of comes at it like this, and he likes to talk to you about, you know, at one point he was told that, uh, you know, he left a press conference with another fighter, and that was considered disrespectful. And he said, no, 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 no. The the other fighter was going to describe his style, and I didn't want it. I didn't want that advantage going into the match, you know? I wanted to fight that out for myself. I didn't want any spoilers. Aww. Thing is, he doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. He's a very clean-leaving person, and when asked about it, he's like, "Well, you know what? You know, I have some vices. I, you know, I like a piece of cheesecake every now and again." Oh my god! <laughs> what a cinnamon roll. He's a he's beautiful, but again, it didn't do well in as you as you are now familiar, Bob, in the very loud world of professional wrestling. He went through it like an iceberg, and nothing phased him. <laughs> He was not popular in the locker room because he didn't party. And he was not popular with the fans because he wrestled an incredibly effective but kind of boring style. Wow. I managed to get my brother into pro wrestling. So now Kai also has some frame of reference. I know. I I don't follow any product regularly. But you know to call it a product. There you go. I do. I know the terms. I'm in proximity to wrestling knowledge. Being a good academic, I've learned to bullshit that I know. Mm. There you go. That's how you do it. 